Return on India is the latest release in the Colossus family of podcasts. For full transcripts and more supporting materials, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you will find the full library of content from Colossus shows like Invest Like the Best, Business Breakdowns, Web3 Breakdowns, Founders, 50X, and now Return on India. If you'd like to stay up to date on all announcements for Return on India and other Colossus shows, make sure to sign up for the weekly newsletter again on joincolossus.com. Now on to the show. Welcome to Return on India, a deep dive series covering one of the most populous and promising economies in the world. Through conversations with central figures in Indian business, Return on India will unpack the details that matter for investors and operators. We will examine the unique cultural dynamics behind emerging demographic trends, and we will drill into key sectors by talking to the business leaders driving change. We plan to investigate the past, present, and future as we explore India's investment case. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. My guest today is Prakalpa Sankar, founder of Outland. Outland is one of the most exciting SaaS businesses in India, and PK was the perfect guest to dive deep into what's going on in the Indian ecosystem. In the Indian ecosystem, when we think about startups, they're consumer startups or they're enterprise startups. Consumer startups at large have seen a major shift over the years. They've gone from low-hanging fruit services businesses to more challenging X for Y companies to building natively for India's use cases. The SaaS and enterprise have taken a different motion. SaaS companies in India are not just building for the domestic market, but for the global market. In this conversation, we covered all things SaaS why India's hidden inflection point, and what are the downstream implications of building great SaaS companies for Indian society? Please enjoy my conversation with Prakalpa Sankar. Prakalpa, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you on today. We're going to go deep into SaaS in India. You're building a really interesting company at Atlan, and there's a tidal wave going on right now in Indian SaaS that I think is worth double-clicking into. Let's first start with what is India SaaS? Maybe you can help us define it and give us a sense of why folks are so excited about the opportunity today. Broadly, India SaaS is people building software companies in India to sell either in India or globally. And what is, I think, really interesting about the time that we are in right now is that we have hit somewhat of a inflection point in SaaS, especially in SaaS coming out of India. So India has always been great at being a fantastic talent market in tech, but traditionally it's been very service company oriented. So it's been the TCSs and the Infosys and the Capgeminis of the world, but also the BCGs and the Bains and all of their knowledge centers and capability centers are built in India. But what's been really interesting, I think, in the last 10 to 15 years is this move of that talent that's not necessarily building services businesses anymore, but actually going and building software businesses. And I think we've started seeing the first wave of those companies 
IPOing with Freshworks or Zoho hitting a billion dollars in revenue. The second wave of companies, which is developer first type tooling that is capturing the world, companies like Postman that have led the way there or Browser Stack. And now we're in the third innings of SaaS, where SaaS is really matured in, in India. There's true communities and there's talent that has actually gone through one or two cycles that can go in and build the next wave of companies. Just a super, super exciting time in terms of what can be done through SaaS or the SaaS market globally from India. Talent reallocation towards SaaS is something that's interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But one of the interesting things that we've covered pretty deeply on this podcast is the India stack. So it's a well-known topic now that we've discussed. It's obviously had a massive impact on consumer tech in India directly. I think it's underappreciated how much India stack or other macro forces like India stack have had an impact on Indian SaaS companies. It might be interesting to double click into what are the macro forces in your mind that are driving this inflection point that we're arriving at now for India SaaS? I would actually say a bunch of different things. I think the first is the population. We have the youngest 25 to something population in the entire world. We have this wave of folks that are entering the economy, that are looking to work, that are reasonably well-educated. And I think that gives you this massive talent pool in some ways, which in fact, companies like Zoho have really used. If you study Zoho's model and you study Zoho University, where they're literally taking kids out of school and they're sponsoring school for them and they're giving them their first job and they're people who are living in villages that are learning to code and it's just beautiful, the kind of models that they've been able to create, which is probably one of the reasons why I think they are the only company that has hit a billion dollars in ARR, in SaaS ever without raising a single dollar of capital. So I think there's this amazing talent opportunity that exists. B, I think digitization in India is just at a whole different level. We're a global company, which means I split my time between the Bay Area and India. But every single time I come back to India... And I see what is possible. You can get anything delivered in 10 minutes in India. You look at the payment stack with UPI, every single, like a maid and a driver, and everybody accepts smartphone payments. And you just see this wave where I moved from Singapore to India 10 years ago. And I remember it was actually a step back from a digitization perspective and things like that. But today, I don't think there's any place in the world that is more convenient than India in just where we are. Single day deliveries, midnight, you want a desert and you're craving for it and it's going to show up at your door in 10 minutes. That's just not possible anywhere else in the world. And I think what's been amazing is the extent of that population, which is not just the affluent, it's actually everybody that is now on a smartphone. And I think that is still early. I think the impact on SaaS is actually, we're not there yet. But I think we now have this new youth population that is growing up with tech and the internet in a way that just didn't happen five years ago or 10 years ago. And I think the real impact of that is going to be seen in the next 10 years in some ways. And I think the third most underappreciated in my mind, but if you think about the standard of living in India today, it might be one of the most convenient places to live in in the world. There's again an amazing set of people that are moving back from anywhere around the world to come build in India and live in India. Because now India has opportunity to build great global products. 20 years ago, I think there was a time where you would see people move out of India after they graduate, just because that was how you get opportunity. And I think there's almost the reverse of that happening now, because now there's amazing opportunity, but there's also amazing cost of living and you're close to your family. And it's something I hear 
a ton of in candidate interviews these days. I was in India last fall and I came back and I was telling folks in the West, other founders and investors that it feels like our payment system isn't an emerging economy compared to India when you leverage UPI. Some of these foundational pieces have just been absolutely incredible. On SaaS specifically, you've just touched on it, which is SaaS itself has gone through waves and has evolved a ton. We've seen this on the consumer side with startups going from low-hanging fruit businesses like classifieds, marketplaces, to X for Y companies. That was a very common phrase and phase that Indian startups went through to now India native unicorns. So on the consumer side, the most exciting thing that you see is you see these companies that are actually building for India first use cases. And that model really follows the best innovation in the world. If you look at the United States, you didn't build a Airbnb for X country or an Uber for X country. It was truly a domestic native use case. Talk a little bit more about the evolution of SaaS in India. How have companies gone from phase to phase? And where are we now in terms of SaaS in India? I think the way I would describe it is I would think about it in three distinct phases. The first is leveraging India's cost advantage to build software products. And typically, you'd see these with companies like Zoho or companies like Freshworks. And they fundamentally pick these really big markets like CRM. And you can leverage the business model. It was really business model innovation. I would say that that first wave of companies, which you leverage the cost advantage, you leverage efficiency, you can create equivalent products at lower cost and sell at a lower cost, which is fundamentally the theme of evolution. So that was, I think, the first class of businesses that were built in software. Fast forward, I would say five years from there was when we started seeing companies that were building great products, but fundamentally leveraging the internet for distribution. So this is where you'd see companies like Postman or BrowserStack, which are by far the best products in their categories, but never really had a sales-led motion, but were truly like developer-led businesses, which meant you could build world-class products but did not necessarily need go-to-market and enterprise and all of those things that classic enterprise sales model of the West would mean. And I think now we are in this third wave of companies, which are essentially saying we are the best product, but we're going to go win the category just the way any company anywhere in the world, whether it's born at the Valley or not, would do. For example, companies like Hatlin, we don't have a developer-led motion. And we do say we are the best product in the market. We are going to win this category. We're creating this almost new category. So we're leading that. But our first salesperson was in the US and our entire go-to-market org is built in the US. And so I think this is, I would say, the third wave of businesses that are starting to get built up, which can prove that you can build category creating, defining businesses just about anywhere in the world. I want to talk about why the GTM team is in the US. I think it pushes out and teases out a pretty interesting insight. But before we get into that, I do think it's worth commenting. SaaS is unique in India, especially from a Western investor perspective. On one hand, you look at the headline numbers of India and you think it makes sense to build for India because of how much software can drive in terms of solutions and how large the market is. But most of these India SaaS companies actually don't build domestically. They don't build for the Indian market. They're building for the world from India. So help us understand a little bit more about the difference between building SaaS for India, we can call it domestic SaaS versus SaaS for the world. And why do companies trend to being more focused on the world market versus the local market? 
I would say a couple of things. I think a big chunk of it just comes down to market and what can you go win in the world. Even today, by any means, North America is the world's largest software market. You look at Salesforce's numbers or Tableau's numbers or anybody's numbers, you know where the market really is. And I think the reason for that is because it's also one of the most mature software buying markets that exists in the world. So typically, business buyers are extremely educated. They know how to buy software. North America has gone through those cycles. I'd say Europe is the second, Asia is really the third in that broad market analysis that you would do just about anywhere in the world. So then the question is that if you can build world-class software, how can you create the most value? I know a lot of people think about this in businesses and size of market or anything like that. But as an entrepreneur, you want to create the most value you can create in the world. And so the way to create the most value you can create in the world is to go sell and go find customers or find the most customers that you can. And if those customers exist in the world and not necessarily in domestic, then you go do it. I can give you a personal nugget. In my past life, I actually ran a company that did a lot of work in emerging markets. We had some software products that we would typically sell into. Actually, some of the hardest to sell, we sold to the government and we sold to hospitals and just really hard to sell customers. But something I realized is just how much harder it is to sell because of the biomajority. I still remember this one time where I was in this negotiation with the largest oil companies in India. And I was like, this is the software subscription price. It starts so much lower than like this perpetual license that they wanted. They were like, but we want the perpetual license. We want the source code. And I was like, why? Why would you want source code? This, all of this stuff is obsolete in like two years. You don't want that. I remember I actually literally once had to create this deck to explain to people the difference between legacy and open source and on-prem and SaaS and how the whole world is moving to SaaS. And it was really hard <laughs> to change that mindset. And the reality is that why would most software companies want to do that? I think that really is the difference. I think you can just create a ton of value by thinking global on day zero. One of the interesting things of thinking global from day zero is you observe by definition, how do you build a SaaS company? How do good SaaS companies get built in the West? And how do good SaaS companies get built in India? And what are the relative pros and cons or what are the relative unique strengths of both? So I want to double click into that because you are building a global SaaS company. You guys have been building one from day one. So let's talk about some of the differences between building a global SaaS company from India versus the West. You've shared some pretty interesting perspectives with me offline, and I'd love to surface those here. So maybe let's start with the West. What is the West uniquely good at that these Indian SaaS businesses can learn from? I think I'll start with prefacing that when you say you're building a global company, you have to truly mean it. I think in our case, we don't consider ourselves an Indian SaaS company to begin with. We are distributed across 20 countries and our team is spread across 20 countries. And we'd like to create a space where every one of those locations has an equal say in the business. For example, we have innovation in our customer success model come out of Asia, and we have innovation in our sales model come out of Europe. And that's just something that you have to fundamentally commit to. You don't just build a global company by saying that I have two talent centers in the US and India, then you're not a global company. I think it's important to first level set and say, which kind of company you want to build. And I think that was really important to us from day zero, where we said, we want to build a company that's truly global, which means that we don't have a headquarters, which means that we don't have a center where decisions get made. And I think that was really important to us on day zero. And I think from there, we were able to come down and say, 
what can we learn from every one of these geographies that they do well so that you can really create what I think the future best company will look like, which doesn't look like a Indian company selling in the US or a US company trying to move into other parts of the world. Or if you truly had to build a global best in class company, what does that global best in class company look like? That was what I think helped us. We've thought deeply about what are the things that we go learn from North America? What are the things we learn from Europe? Even Eastern Europe, what are the things that we learn from India? And I think that is a perspective we've taken. What we've learned over time, some of the things that I've learned, the things that North America is just phenomenal in doing is scaling. There is a clear scale playbook. It's really hard to get a product market fed, but once you get a product market fed, there is a clear playbook on here's how you go from that point to the next point. And the reason for that, I think, is actually talent. People underestimate the value of talent. But if you think about product marketing, you talk to the earliest product marketing leaders that came out of Salesforce. So even today, the best product marketing leaders in SaaS all started in this one floor in Salesforce where they were all 20-something and they were figuring out how to do product marketing. And they went on and became the next-gen product marketing leaders and then the CMOs. I think that journey, or if you think about Adobe back in the day in the Valley, there's talent that's gone through cycles. And that's really important because how do you learn these things? You go learn from a great leader And then that great leader basically teaches the next person and the next person. And that's something the West does extremely well. So you'd see marketing, messaging, brand, enterprise sales playbooks. Those are just things that I think you can learn phenomenally from the US. I think the US also thinks more about strategy than most companies in Asia, for example. They think deeply about strategy. And this is probably because the cost of talent is higher, which basically means that you can't do 10 things. So you have to pick one or two. So there are much better playbooks on how do you pick one or two and how do you go after those? So I think those are things that you can learn from North American companies. Let's talk about go-to-market specifically and the implications. So if you think about product marketing, sales, et cetera, there's one element of this, which is, to your point, talent density and ecosystem maturity. There's another part of it, which is what is the unique focus of that sphere? So let's say product marketing. And then what value does that attribute back? I've always noticed being a person of Indian origin in the West and visiting India and visiting family a ton growing up, that there's certain things that India is really uniquely good at. There's certain things the West is really uniquely good at. I've always felt that the West is uniquely good at marketing and sales. And the stories of India were very worthy of that marketing and sales, but the innate nature and or talent to tell those stories was just not there. You've coined this in a pretty interesting way. You call it the 120%. I want you to explain that concept and help us unpack a little bit more about this notion or this perspective of sales in the US and marketing in the US versus in India. The way I think about 120% is we have this we have this internal value. We call it giving 120%. And if you had to build like a world-class company, can you pick every single thing that you do? And can you do it in a way that is truly world-class. When someone looks at it, they go like, oh, wow, that was great. And the best examples of this that you would see are that's pick Slack's release notes. I don't know if you've ever read Slack's release notes, but it is delightful. Every release note is delightful. I have never seen a company talk about bug fixes in a way that gives you a smile. (laughs) Or you look at landing pages of a website. I remember when we were building our first website and we were like, what is the world's best software website? And we were like, strike. And we sort of said, okay, that's our benchmark. 
honestly, we didn't get anywhere close to Stripe's website. But with far less resources, I think beyond 95% of companies are scale and size in some ways. I think that's what I think about is 120%. And I think being a truly global company is you ask that question, what does 120% in this function look like? And you touched on this, but I think marketing, creative, a lot of that, especially in software, I think now you'll see with consumer, I think just about anywhere in the world you can learn from. But I think in software, the best companies to learn from are still in, typically in North America. But you know, if you think about demand gen, that's something you should learn from Freshworks. Freshworks is great at demand gen. That's something you learn from Freshworks. You want to learn how to build world-class engineering teams? There's actually a ton you can learn from companies based in India and Asia. I think you have to pick literally individual function and say, what does world-class in this particular function look like? And then go and sort of learn that and then build from there. So what I heard from you in that response is that now there's actual maturation in the Indian ecosystem. So whereas you may have looked at inspiration exclusively before from Western companies, you can now find that type of inspiration in Indian companies as well. There's another component to this though, which is what are the actual advantages of Indian companies that are structurally just different from a function of being in India versus being in the West? So if the West is structurally more advantaged in a mature ecosystem or in specific functions like go-to-market, sales, marketing, et cetera, I'm curious what the inverse of that is from your perspective. What are global SaaS companies that are being built from India, what are they uniquely better at than companies in the West? The most important thing, I think, is the lack of experience has some advantages. Sometimes the people who reshape an industry don't come from the industry. And so if you think about what that means in India or talent in India, is that you have to start everything at first principles, largely. And what that means is that you don't have a baseline of this is what good looks like. So you can set a mental base that is 10x of what average good looks like because that's what you did in your previous company. And there is a extreme advantage to that in a way that there are so many things that we've been able to rethink, be it there are some SaaS companies in India that have owned SEO at a level that no company in the world would. And that's by shipping three articles a day. You talk to like most companies in the world and they'd be like, that's not possible. You can't do that. This is the shipping rate. You can't do more than 10 a month with this team. It's just not possible. But actually it is. If you truly go deep and say, let's think about this from first principles and let's build this out, it's actually possible. Similarly, product and engineering. How much product can you ship? Turns out you can actually ship a lot. So if you keep your bar high and you don't say, I need to focus on just this one thing and do it at this speed and you don't have that mental bar, I think there's a lot you can do. I think about this in terms of typically just hustle culture, the shipping culture, those kinds of things that I think you'd see Asia. I would say you can learn a ton from Asia. And so you'll see also functions that tend to do well against those like so demand gen, product, engineering, these are functions that also tend to be the ones that also do extremely well in talent bases in places like Asia. You said it earlier, which is finding product market fit in the West is difficult. But then once you do, you have this defined playbook to scale. But one of the pieces that's been pretty interesting from my perspective when digging one of the numbers of SaaS companies that are being built out of India is just how much more efficient those companies are than Western companies. And you alluded to it a bit in terms of the art of the possible. What is actually possible in terms of amount of shipping, whether it's content, product, et cetera. 
dig in a little bit more on the efficiency piece. Typically, when people hear efficiency in India, they think it's just low cost. And that's one component of it. Obviously, salaries, et cetera, are different. But I think there's a couple other elements that are worth teasing out or are interesting. How do you think about efficiency when you're building from India versus some of the companies you observe in the West? I think that's actually debatable. I think there are two schools of thoughts in that in terms of when you really go to scale, do you actually have better unit economics because you build out of India versus otherwise? And I think there's a debate. So I don't know if that's necessarily true. For example, you'll see metrics like ARR per head tend to typically be lower in a place like India versus in US. So I think it's a little debatable. And honestly, in our case, I don't think we necessarily think about this from an efficiency point of view as much as we think about this from a talent point of view. So the way we think about it is like, if we had to go build the best company, then the way we build the best company is by going and building the best talent base that we possibly can. And where is the best place in the world for us to find that talent? And I think the mindset in our case is very different from a traditional in North America, you'd say, hey, I'll open up the center to optimize cost or to outsource this. And that is not our fundamental approach. Our fundamental approach is to say, where can you find the talent that you need that can do this as well as possible at scale? When you think about it from that point of view, you understand that there are certain things that India talent base is far better at doing. And there are certain things that North America is far better at doing. And even in North America, there are certain things you do on the East Coast and there are certain things you do on the West Coast. <laughs> there are certain things you do in Central America. And there are certain things you do in Canada. And there are certain things you do in Europe. Because that's just how the talent markets and bases in those countries are structured, which gives you as a startup a unique advantage. That might or might not translate into efficiency. I think efficiency is the way a company runs. You have to learn how to run a great, efficient company, and it should not necessarily be based on which region <laughs> your team is built into. WhatsApp was 50 people. Was it the most efficient business ever? Absolutely. But was that because they had talent in a certain region? Not really. Efficiency, I think, is a separate argument. I don't think we should necessarily tie it to the way you think about region. I like that framing. There is a part of India's culture that I think you have to tie completely to the region. I think it's hard to overstate or candidly explain it if you haven't really experienced it, but it's hospitality and service. And the reason I bring that out is I'm curious if you find that that's seeped into kind of SaaS startup culture, B2B enterprise culture, especially for things like customer success, or it's just a behavior that's siloed and really only applicable to other segments of the economy. I always tell folks in the West when they ask, what are the highlights of visiting India? Of course, the culture, it's 26 different countries in one country. There's so much to learn, observe, feel, but the hospitality is unparalleled. The hospitality and the service culture is unparalleled to anywhere else in the world. I'm curious if that's something you find translates into company building or it's more just a part of the retail or traditional markets. I actually think it translates a lot into company building. So for those who don't know, in India, there's this thing that you grow up with, which is treat a guest like God. If you've lived in a five-star hotel in India or any hotel in India, and you go anywhere else in the world. <laughs> okay, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is not good hospitality. And I think that bar of hospitality is extremely high. I think the epitome of that was when there were the terrorist attacks in Baj in Mumbai. And there's actually a great Howard Business case study on it, where even though they could leave and they could save their lives, 600 of them stayed in until every guest left. And nobody asked them to do it. It wasn't an order. They just did it. These interviews you see of these 21-year-old girls 
were literally just out of college. It's their first job. And you ask them, why didn't you run? And they say, I didn't even think I could. I think it's something that's cultural in some ways in terms of just what the bar of hospitality should look like. And I think that translates amazingly into service and the way you service your customers. I still remember, I think the second or the third customer we sold to in Atlin when I was on a call with them and they were gushing, oh, we've never gotten this kind of service ever. You guys are such a partner. It's amazing the way you respond. And in my past life, I used to sell to the government. And I was like, we have done 5% of what I would have done in an Indian government project at this point. Nobody would say that we did a good job back then for that stuff. And so I think the bar of what great hospitality and service looks like is very high. And I think that percolates into customer success and service and the way you think about that in software companies as well. And how does that permeate? I'm curious from a cultural perspective, like we talked a little bit more about this concept of when you're building a global company from day one, you're taking the best of functions in best of countries. So you're learning from the US, the East Coast, the West Coast, North America, Canada, everything you framed out. I'm curious from a cultural perspective, how does that jive and resonate? I think from a cultural perspective, you would aspire, if you use that same parallel, to be pulling out hospitality, collectivism, et cetera, from a country like India. You'd probably be wanting to point out more innovation, entrepreneurship, edginess from a North America, so on and so forth. And many of those cultural tenants can be at odds with one another. They don't all necessarily gel. And so I'm curious when you're building a best-in-class culture for Atlan as a global business from day one, how do you learn from what those countries are good at from a cultural perspective and gel it in a way that works for your business? I think part of it is foundationally thinking about the values that matter to you as a company. And I think that sets the bar. I wouldn't say that every single person you hire in India is going to have more customer bent than every single person in North America. Like That's not true. There are things that you can learn from certain cultures and then every human is still every human. <laughs> Looker, which was Tony World in North America, they have the best customer success and customer love team that I've ever seen in my life, right? And American Express is another great example. You have to separate those a little bit. The culture that you grow up in, it has some impact, but it doesn't necessarily impact who you are at work and then what you are as a business. And so I think the way we think about it is we have certain values that matter a lot to us at Ashley. Giving 120% is a company value. Problem first, solution second is another company value, which sounds really simple, but it's very hard to actually implement in daily life. Or bias for action is another company value. And we then take those and say, okay, if you have to apply this in every function, where does that sit? And so to your point, actually, bias for action, and we actually have another value, which is never be satisfied. Sometimes they're at odds with each other. Bias for action is like, go quickly, never be satisfied, is do your best job. Then you say, okay, for this thing that I'm doing right now, which of those two things matter more? And then do I have to make a trade-off? The baseline that I think a lot of people think is that you have to make a trade-off. And you know what you don't? If you really think about it again from a first principles perspective, I think there's a lot of mindset that goes into it. So I'll give you an example. I think the first team I ever ran in my life was back in university. It was this team that we had to bring together to cold call businesses and basically get sponsorship for something. And it was this group of 10 college kids and no one had ever done a cold call ever before and we just got together saw a couple of videos and we set this really high bar we will do 150 calls a day or something like that it was nuts per person five minutes per call and at the end of our campaign i think we 10 what had ever been done before if you set the bar high enough and a part of that is knowing what you learn from where 
So if you set the bar for demands and high by learning from Freshworks, then your team knows that you can get it and you don't have to make a trade-off. And so that's the way I would think about it. I think you have to set the bar high, know what values matter to you as a company, where you can learn from and then build a culture around it. And if you're truly building a global company, that culture should not be a function of which region someone in that team comes from or where they come from. That should not play an impact in the way that your company culture is built. We didn't talk a lot about Atlan in this episode. We'll probably have to do a fully separate episode on it. Product is fascinating. It's a data collaboration workspace. Basically, it does for data what GitHub does for engineers, Figma does for designers. The founding story of it is interesting. You incubated it when you were building the world's largest data lake, India's national data platform. I'd love for you to double click into that. And the reason I want you to double click into that is because I think that experience underscores just how transformative the opportunity for India SaaS is. It also pulls together a lot of the themes that we've been talking about today. So you can listen to this conversation and you can ask from a first principles perspective, what is the real utility of building a global SaaS company? How do you build a global SaaS company? We've talked through some of those mechanics. Why is now the right time to build SaaS in India? But the nuggets of how you guys incubated the idea and what you really experience when working on India's national data platform, I think is a really nice tie together actually for how it's not that just building software is a market opportunity, but there's a significant amount of downstream implications that actually occur from a societal perspective if you build appropriate software. So maybe you can double click into that a little bit and help us tease that out. Our founding story is that we were at Data Team ourselves trying to solve these big world problems. Hey, we want to go solve poverty alleviation. We want to go look at national level healthcare budgets and things like that. And the only way to do that at scale was to partner with organizations like the government or the UN or the World Bank. And they did not have data teams or technology teams or anything like that. So we sort of just had to become their data team. And I think that's really where I learned everything that I learned about building and running data teams and how complex and chaotic they can get. Data teams are very unique because they're very diverse. You have analysts and engineers and scientists and business users, and they all have their own pooling preferences and their own DNA and their own limitations. And so making them work together is actually really, really hard. I think 27% of data projects are actually successful in the world or something like that. Like, it's nuts. And we face this. Day in and day out, firefighting, number on a dashboard is broken. We don't know why. I kid you not, there's one time when I got a call to the cabinet minister's office at 8 in the morning saying, number on this dashboard looks broken. And I remember opening up my laptop and realizing a 2x spike and not knowing what to do with with the data. And I think from there, we realized that we just had to find a better way for our team to work. We could not run these large-scale projects. With the kind of diversity and scale of data that we were working with, we were at one point processing data for half a billion Indian citizens. And I think billions of pixels of satellite imagery a day. At that scale and that diversity, there was no way that we were going to be able to run it in the way that we were. And we tried to buy products and we failed at that. And so we were kind of forced to build that in sort of for ourselves. And I think that journey gave us a couple of different things. I think one, because of the kind of problems we were solving, we were forced to think first principles in a way that I think many normal companies would not. One problem that we had to solve was in education, we had low attendance rates in schools. You look at that problem surficially and you think, hey, you know what? Probably it has to do with teachers. The teachers show up at school or the school infrastructure. But then you actually go a little deeper and then you realize, actually, you start to see that there are certain times when girls stop coming to school. And then you realize that, oh, actually, there's no girl's toilet in the school, which means that when a girl is on her period, 
she actually can't show up at school. Or you actually realize that during the harvesting months, kids of laborers need to actually go to field to help their families. And so then they don't go to school. And so actually improving your attendance rate in schools has nothing to do with education. It actually has to do with healthcare and infrastructure and all these other things. We talked about first principle thinking, I think a lot in this call, but I think that the kinds of problems that we were exposed to helped us do that. And then I think in some ways, Action was born as a solution to that, right? Like we were like, there has to be a better way for our data team to run. Like we can't run like this. And we couldn't buy one and we couldn't find one. And so we sort of just built it for ourselves. I think actually double clicking into how interconnected these big problems are is just really fascinating. Because to me, again, from the Western perspective, looking at the Indian market, I think the really exciting thing about India and India SaaS right now is great companies are going to be built. They're going to hit huge market caps. It's going to be transformational for the startup ecosystem. But more largely, from a society perspective, it's going to be super transformational in terms of how the country actually advances. As we round out the discussion, I've asked the same question to all of our guests that have come on, and I'm curious to get your take. I think the conversation around India right now is one of potential energy versus kinetic energy. There's lots of macro forces. There's lots of tailwinds. There's lots of case studies now of companies that are being successful at scale. And so there's a lot of excitement of what the ecosystem can be. And we're seeing that also over the last couple of years, just with the inflection point of the amount of venture dollars that are coming into the ecosystem. So if over the coming decade, from your vantage point, if India does accomplish its potential, I'm curious why that would have been, what would have gone right? And the counter is, if India doesn't accomplish its potential, what, in your opinion, would have gone wrong? In my mind, it actually just comes down to one thing, and it's how India's talent decides they want their lives to be. And I personally believe this, that I think today in India, you have this amazing opportunity. And opportunity that 25 years ago, my parents didn't have, and their parents definitely didn't have. And you have this opportunity to go build things at scale. To make the most out of that opportunity, you have to live to your potential, which means you work hard and you hustle and you make up for the things that you don't have. The thing that worries me the most is actually a sense of complacency, which actually in some ways is a function of the venture dollars that have been pumped into the market. We have to realize that there is this amazing opportunity. And if we really want to leverage that opportunity, we go do everything that we need to do to make up for what we don't have and leverage our strengths to go build on those to actually win. And so if India's talent learns to operate with that intensity, then India will win. And India's talent used to have this intensity. I think in the recent times, India's talent, my sense is there's more and more people who are a lot more complacent than they should be, which is totally fine. It's their choice in life, but then they should know that they're not living to their potential. And that's going to impact the entire ecosystem. And so I think it's a choice that you make. I think the way the talent operates and learns and grows and hustles and does all those things is going to define whether India accomplishes its potential or not. I like the framing and I like boiling it down to It's interesting when you ask different people the same question, which direction they take it in. So I really like almost the unit economic approach, the atomic unit approach, specifically on talent and their mindset. Rakhava, this was awesome. I really enjoyed having you on and helping us understand a little bit more about the Indian SaaS landscape. You're welcome anytime on. We'll have to do a next episode on Outland, but I appreciate you taking the time and sharing your perspectives. Same here. And thanks for having me. This was fun. 
To keep learning about the topics discussed, head to joincolossus.com where you'll find our curated list of resources, a transcript for this episode, and a library of conversations on investing and business. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.